0: all right uh good evening everybody we are about to start a let's say the the one of the more uh, i wouldn't say controversial but one of the more challenging topics that we have in this uh in this series on jewish philosophy which we have titled um the big questions and so we have dealt with the issues of free choice we've done the concept of determinism um and tonight we are going to deal with the concept of tzaddik veralo, which is called theodicy so if you wonder what theodicy means is the concept of how to justify um, how a benevolent God can allow evil things to take place in the world? Now, just to um, put this in a little bit of context. So, in the first week, we spoke about how Hashem operates in the world on a much more macro level. We talked about we talked about divine providence, how it manifests itself on a on a global scale, on a, on a macro scale. Tonight, we're going to be dealing with much more on the micro scale. So, if you recall then, we talked about different um, ways of understanding how Hashem works with regards to nature. is there nature or is all nature Hashem, or are they somehow inter, you know interlinked in some way or another? So those were the the topics that we we spoke about tonight. We are going to be going along the um, i suppose the unique uh, position that was that we spoke about there that there is this concept of divine providence meaning that everything happens for a reason, whatever that reason may be. Now, the question is going to be based on why do bad things happen? So the assumption is going to be that there's a reasoning or rationale behind it. And we're going to try to understand it from a a bunch of different um, philosophical perspectives. I'm actually not going to talk... I, in previous weeks, I, I go through different commentaries. Tonight, I'm just going to actually, well, there will be different positions, but all these positions are going to be ones that come out of the Gomorrah. They're not going to be positions that come out of uh, Rishonim and early commentaries. You're not going to hear Rambam and uh, Ramban and Rashi and the like tonight as much as you're going to hear it much more, so to speak, from the horse's mouth, from from the from the Talmud itself. Now, this it is possible that tonight's session uh, will end up being a double session, and it really is because I, I'd like to give it the um, the, the 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 amount of time and um, and perspective that is necessary to understand this, even though we're only going to be scratching the surface, I think there's a lot uh, a lot of uh, material that needs to be covered, um, before not only in answering the question, but what we're going to at least start with the introduction over here is defining the question, and I think that is what's going to be uh, one of the uh, difficult parts of this because this becomes, um dare I say one of those conversations or one of those topics that people th- you know they think it's a very good question but they've never really analyzed the question it's something that they just sort of say why do bad things happen to good people and then that's sort of the starting point and the end point and you know people uh, will come up with ideas oh everything happens for the best um, you know and the like but what I'd like to start with is just questioning all the assumptions on which that um, particular question is based. So, so first and foremost, if a person is coming to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? So first we're going to have to deal with three basic assumptions of Hashem. <clears throat> and that is, and you've got it all in front of you, and if anyone wants these sheets, I'm more than happy to hand them off. But understand them. Number one is God is all good. Meaning that what God does is, uh, is in the benefits and interests of humanity and in, and in the interests of goodness. And God is a good being. Now, why is that a necessary characteristic to understand Hashem? Because if Hashem is not good, well, then why do bad things happen? Very simple. Hashem not good. So bad, you know, if God's, you know, God's uh, also morally ambivalent. And if God's morally ambivalent, so why do bad things happen? Because God had a bad day, so he took it out on his people. I mean, that's so to speak. So you have to have that. If you want to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? So you need to have one, that God is a good being. And therefore, everything God does should be good. And what I'm seeing seems to be out of sync with that particular definition of the fact that Hashem is good. Okay, that's number one. Number two is Hashem is what we call um, um, uh, omnipotent. So omnipotent is completely powerful, that Hashem has the ability to do whatever Hashem wants. Hashem can, controls the entire world. So nothing happens without Hashem uh, willing it to be so. And that is also an absolutely critical stage, because if one says Hashem is not omnipotent, so then why do bad things happen? Because Hashem doesn't have the ability to change that. Hashem. Hashem looks at it and Hashem is terribly saddened by the fact that bad things are happening because he's God, good and God empathizes and sympathizes with humanity. But at the end of the day, if God can't stop it. And that's why bad things happen. Now, if you recall, uh, when we spoke about uh, providence a, a number of weeks ago, I quoted a book by a non-Orthodox uh, rabbi <coughs> called Why Do Bad Things Happen? A guy named Harold Kushner. And his philosophy was that bad things happen because Hashem, so to speak, set the wheels of nature in motion and Hashem is powerless to the forces of nature. So, when bad things happen, why do people get sick and why do they suffer so badly? Very simple because Hashem cannot ch- stop it. Hashem, so to speak, you know, he's let the, the cat out of the bag and now you can't, uh, you Just there's nothing he can do about it. So traditional Jewish thinking would say, no, that's not possible. And and, and it would... Uh, so number one is Hashem's all good. Number two, Hashem is omnipotent. Number three is Hashem is omniscient. Omniscient means that Hashem is all-knowing. So this is also similarly a critical uh, factor in understanding the question. Because if Hashem doesn't know what's going on, so why are... You know why did uh, why are people suffering in Asia? You know Southeast Asia, the you know the whole uh, Cambodian uh, tragedy, the Khmer Rouge. Why did Hashem do that? Well, Hashem didn't know. You know, he didn't have the, a good Wi-Fi connection and didn't know what was going on at the top. So, unless you say that Hashem is all good, all powerful, and all knowing, you can't ask the question. Now, that's not to say that it's uh, it's 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 not a painful question and it's not a troubling question, but. You need to believe in these three things. These are the starting points. So if a person says, I don't believe in God, why do bad things happen to good people? So there's a very simple reason, because you know, bad things happen. I won't use the exact term that's used in but bad things happen, things happen. So that's why bad things happen. So you say, what you really want to mean, when you say, why do bad things happen to good people? What you really mean is, if God has the power to change everything, and God has the knowledge of everything that takes place. And God is good. And he only wants good to happen. So how does this thing happen which uh, which seems to be uh, in contradiction to that? So that's number one. So if you ask yourself that question or you've heard that question asked, these are three fundamental assumptions that need to be accepted before such time as you can even enter into the dialogue of the question. And that's point number one. Um, before going to point number two, I think it's critical to understand from what perspective we are um, dealing with this question. So the the, pro, the question of theodicy can be dealt with uh, on an intellectual plane and can be dealt with on an emotional plane. Intellectual plane is just you know you know why do these things happen? So for example, if you are uh, A kid, kid, his ice cream falls on the floor and he starts crying. And he say, listen, it's only an ice cream. There'll be thousands more ice creams in your lifetime. It's really not the end of the world. And uh, in the big scheme of things, this is really not a big deal. So for you, you're able to keep it in your head. It is a purely intellectual thing. This is not a bad thing that happened. But for the kid, it's his whole world. All he knows is ice cream. And from his perspective, the worst thing in the world that could have happened has just happened is his ice cream's fall away, And he is complete emotion. So when you are dealing with the topic from an emotional level, no rationale will ever suffice. So if a person is saying, Why do bad things happen to good people? They want to understand it intellectually. How potentially could um, Hashem allow this to happen? So, if you want to understand the philosophy, so then we can have a discussion about it. But if it's coming from a point of pain, either your pain or knowing others that have that are suffering, and then trying to define it as you're trying to create an intellectual answer that will satisfy an emotional need, and the reality is you cannot do that. It just it it just doesn't work. And we see that through in in so many cases of. uh let's say if you're going to look at um, who was it? Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. I'm just trying to think. Uh, Gra- was it? Uh, whatever his name was. And the idea that men often are much more stuck in their heads where women are far more emotional beings. Granted, these are the, these are generalized terms as used by But the idea being is that if a woman comes and says, I had a really bad day because this one did this and this one did this and this is what happened, men are, well, let me find five easy solutions to your problem where women don't necessarily want those solutions as much as they want to be able to share and understand and explain. Now, that may or may not be true, but it's talking about the difference of a man who's looking at it in that context from a very intellectual point of view, and intellectual problems have intellectual solutions, but if the problem is an emotional problem, so no intellectual solution will ever satisfy an emotional need. So, so when people come to me and say, so why do bad things happen to good people? Um, I really need to take some time and say, like, where's this question coming from? If this is a question that, you know, we, we were studying about a uh, terrible tragedy and we're just wondering, like, why do, you know, why do bad things happen? So then you can have a discussion. You can talk about the philosophy and the theology. But if a person says, because I've just lost someone or just someone I really care about is suffering terribly, so why do bad things happen? so as rabbis and as humans, I think what we do is we put our hands in the air and we say, I don't know, but how can I help you? How can I support you? And how can I love you? And so we have to be very clear when it comes to, you know, those sort of discussions. Okay. So, so we've gone through the three assumptions that are necessary, as well as uh, the difference between an intellectual question and emotional question. So now once we start dealing with the question, there are two more assumptions that come up. And these are assumptions that people really don't like to have questions. Every question that you ask in life will be based on assumptions. So... If you, uh, you know, if I come and I say, um, "How, uh, how cold is it outside?" It's based on the assumption that it's cold outside. So that may be true. That might not be true. But uh, you have to see. You have to deal with assumptions. So a person says, "Why do bad things happen to good question good people?" It's very simple. The, the assumption is the person, the thing that has happened is very bad, and the person to whom it's happening to is very good. Now. That uh, is the kind of assumption that definitely on an emotional level is one that we will uh, never address. So if someone, we're going to deal with this a little bit later, but if someone says, you know, why did this bad thing happen to my uncle? So it says, well, who says your uncle's good? Maybe your uncle's a really bad person. And that's why bad things happen to him. Now that is never entertained as an option. Now, I, I don't know how you know those of you on this call are going to define the term good and bad in as much as you're going to define it as why do things I don't like happen to people I do like which is really what the question of why do bad things happen to good people it's not a question of you know objectively good and objectively bad it's based on what I want to happen as opposed to what I don't want to happen and and that becomes very questionable because we say all right So let's, before we go into the definition, even even if you're happy to accept that the thing that has happened is a bad thing, by what definitions, by what what terms are you using to define the person as good? So you you can decide however you want, but what, what are going to be the parameters that will determine that the person's good? No doubt that there are, you know, some Talibans somewhere who are, you know, terrorists by almost every definition who are asking the question about their uh, dead Taliban uh, brother who died in battle, why did Allah allow bad things happen to good people, with the same level of commitment and conviction as we would ask it about why our uh, relatives died of terrible diseases. And who's to say, well, so we look at the Taliban and say, why do bad things happen to him? So it's because you're the Taliban, because you are terrible, evil people. And bad things happen to you because God doesn't like you. And that's why bad things happen to you. But they would say the same to us. So how do we know that we are good? Now, this is a, an important question. One of the, when we were deciding to do the Shavuot program, um, one of the topics that um, I'd offered to give was, uh, isn't it enough just to be a good person? And the simple answer is, yes, it is enough. The only difficulty is how do you define a good person? So to uh, quote, uh, I don't know the origins of it. I've heard it on multiple sources. But uh, the way that most people define goodness is uh, best, uh, best translated by an analogy where a guy's walking through a forest and he sees a number of, uh, of uh, targets that have arrows shot through the, uh, shot through the bullseye. And he sees one, two, three targets and eventually he sees an archer sitting under a tree. And he goes to the archer He says, tell me, are you the archer who shot all those bullseyes? And he says, yes, I am. He says, wow, you're an unbelievable shot. Tell me, how did you get so good? He says, it's simple. I shoot the arrow into the tree and then I draw the target around the arrow. Okay. So that is morality uh, in a nutshell for most people is what is a good person? Well, what am I? Well, I'm a person who, you know, so say, well, I like to give tzedakah when it suits me and I've got some spare change and there's somebody who needs it. So that must be what a good person is. And I try my best not to speak Loshanora or, and I try to come to shul uh, every now and again and I haven't killed anyone and I haven't robbed a bank. So therefore, I'm a good person. Okay, that is a definition, but uh, I'm not certain that it's a, a objective enough Because we're always going to be hitting bullseyes. So the question is, is what objective standard are we going to be holding ourselves up to that we're going to be able to say, you know what, maybe we are not as good as we think we are. And how are we going to define that? So this is much more in the realm of theoretical. Because I think anytime you see, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, the idea of saying, you know, are they really good? Like, how, how, how are we going to define good? And so... And and then when it comes to bad, sometimes we can, you know, in hindsight, we can say that certain um, certain things that appeared bad at the time, in hindsight, um, actually turn out to be rather good. But even so, we only know that in hindsight. So it doesn't help us with the question as it's presenting itself in real time. So the Gemara tells a, a story about Rebbe Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva had a had a rabbi whose whose name was Nahum Ish Gamzu, and why they call him Ish Gamzu? Because he always used to say Gamzu even this is for the good. So it says that Rabbi Akiva was walking along. He had it was night, so he had a candle. He had a donkey and a rooster. Sounds like a, a bit of a joke. And he was and he was walking along, and he went into the local town, and he asked for lodging, and they said no no lodging here. So he said Gamzu this will be for the best. So he goes outside in the in the field and he makes camp. And within a short amount of time, the wind comes and blows his candle out. He says, Gam Zulatova. And a little bit later, uh, I, th- I think a, um, a, a, a cat comes and eats his rooster. And then a lion comes and eats his donkey. And at each juncture, he says, Gam Zulatova. So he's now left bereft of everything. The next morning, he goes to the town. And the town is completely emptied because... Uh, bandits came in the middle of the night and robbed the place blind and sent everyone else into, out into slavery. And Rabbi Akiva said, Ah, had they seen the candle or heard the rooster or heard the donkey braying, they would have found me and I too would have uh, been uh, sent off to slavery like the rest of them. You see, Everything Hashem does is always for the best. Okay, that's very good in hindsight. And you have to be an incredible mommy and you know, a person with incredible faith to be able to say that in the present, that oh, this must be for the best. The reality is, is most of us don't have that ability. So so to be able to say, and, and truth be told, is that sometimes things are bad. I mean, there's, there's, there are times where we can say, you know, maybe maybe this will have a silver lining. But if someone gets Nebuchadnezzar a death sentence, well, there's, there's no real upside to it. You know, there's no way of saying, well, it will all turn out for the best. So there are times where things seem to be bad and it happens to people that seem to be good. So, so I'd like to suggest that the question of why do bad things happen to good people is not actually the question of why do good thing, bad things happen to good people. But why is it that people seem to be suffering in a way that is not commensurate to how bad they may be? Okay? So to me like this. I get that we're not all perfect, and we all make mistakes, and we've all done a virus. But surely, what possibly could we have done to warrant that level of punishment? So it's not a matter that we think that people are tzaddikim, that people are completely righteous. We just say that, okay, out of a zero to ten, they are five out of ten. We accept they're fives out of ten. But they're getting punished like they are zero out of ten. That's what doesn't make sense to me. And that's where we're asking this question from, okay? So so, so we still, de- as I said, we are still dealing with the introduction of trying to understand the question, okay? Are there any questions up into, any questions you have for me up until this point in time? If anyone's got any questions, by all means, please unmute, everyone should be able to unmute yourself. If you have any questions, I'll give you five, four, three, two, one. Okay, okay, so that's... uh. That is now. Uh, now let's go to the um, the next assumption, which for me is perhaps the most profound. And this this dawned on me um, a while ago, um, which was the um, the the implications of the question itself. So we say, why do bad things happen to good people? So let me ask the question in reverse: What should happen? So we say, I don't like, I'm looking at the world, I'm seeing bad things happen to good people. So, okay, I hear you don't like that. It doesn't seem fair. And you, apparently you living in a world that you feel that it should be fair. A world that should be just. Okay? And it's not just. So I have a question. Would you like to live in a world that's just? So like, let's put it. What, what would you like to see happen? So most people offer off the bat will say, well, I want uh, good things to happen to good thing- people and bad things happen to bad people. Right? That's, that's what a just world would look like. So ask yourself one question. Would you like to live in that world? So I have only a handful of uh, faces here. So maybe, and it's always wonderful to see some faces. So if you want to turn off your camera and give me a nod or a, or a shake, thanks. Would you want to live in a world Thanks, Mina. Would, would you like to live in a world where bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people? So Mina doesn't want it. Dave's not certain. Dave and Roz? What do you reckon? Mom? So, okay, all right. So, so give us a... Tr- Trevor, you would like to live in such a world? it well, would be a much better world to live in. Okay. If you believe you're good or if you consider to be good, these have- can things will to you, then they're not, they're not so good. All right. Deline, you want to live in such a world? No, Deline doesn't want to live in a world. Sheila, what do you reckon? You want to live in such a world? No. I tell you what, I would hate to live in such a world. Hate to live. And you know what? Not only would I hate to live in such a world, you would all hate to live in such a world. Because what it means is that you have no free choice. Because every element, everything you do in life, is you do it on the assumption that... I could potentially get away with it. Whatever little bad deed you did. You did something naughty. Imagine like this. That someone says, you know, ah, I'm just, oh, I've got this juicy gossip I want to share with you. And as I share it with you, a lightning bolt comes and blows up my car. So am I ever going to speak Loshan again? So you're never going to speak Loshan again. All right, fine. So I say, what's going to happen to Monash Golf Club on Shabbos? It's not going to last because everyone who's going to be driving two things, their cars are going to blow up on the way. Why? Because bad things happen to bad people. And if this is the, now you can define good and bad, however you want to define good and bad. I'm just using the halakhic definitions that a person who lives a non-halakhic life. Okay. You don't have to take that that definition, but however you're going to define it, whatever you define it, as soon as a person transgresses that, if you, as soon as you're not 100% consistent with that value system, you're going to be poached. That means that, what, what options do you have? You literally have a gun against your head, making sure that you, so imagine, so I'm about to take a drink, and I say, ooh, you didn't make a blessing on that, let's see what happens, and as you take a sip of it, boom, you know, you, you trip, or someone plows into your car. So you, you've lost all elements of free choice. So people come with this question of, why do bad things happen to good people? So, right, How would you want the world to look? So people say, well, I like good things happen to good people, bad people, so how would you fare? In such a world. Are you that good? Are you so confident in your everyday activity. That you would never do anything that would veer off the path. That would warrant you, you know, uh, feeling the divine wrath. Whatever, again. I'm not saying you have to use a halakhic definition of what is good and what is not good. But whatever definition it is, you're going to be held to it. 100%. Anytime you compromise your own values. You will be zapped. And I don't think there is anyone who, um, who would want to live in such a world. In fact, I gave, um, I gave a shir um, a while back. This is a little bit off topic, but uh, I think you'll appreciate the, um, the, uh, the, the analogy. So it was a shir that I gave, and the topic was, um, why are conversions so difficult in Jewish law? Why does the bait Din make life so difficult? So I said, all right. So I tell you what, guys, so we had uh, 20 people at the table. I said, you're going to be the bait-in, right? Now, let, let's defi- decide as a bait-in here, what are the standards we're going to put into our, our bait-in to decide whether somebody is a fit or not fit convert? So we said, all right, does, does the person have to commit to anything? Like, maybe they don't have to commit to anything. Someone said, no, no, they have to commit to something, Right? Alright, so what do they have to commit to? So they say, well, uh, how about, do they have to keep kosher? Can a person say, listen, I want to convert to Judaism, but I want to eat pork and shellfish and cheese, meat and milk, and it, it doesn't bother to me. Can, can we accept this person? So this was a, interesting. It was, was not an observant group at all. And they said, no, 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 you can't. You can't you know, if you want to commit, you, you, have to, you have to commit to something. All right. So we started going through it, and the truth be told is that this group of non-observant Jews had standards for the baiting that were higher than the current standards of the Sydney baiting. Because I said if you have to, you have to have standards. Everyone agreed you have to have standards. So there's a there's a famous book by um Aria Kaplan, which um, the the top the title of the book is very short. It's actually more of like a booklet than a book. And it's called If You Were God. And he says Alright, pretend that you're God and um, pretend you're setting up the world, and what are the rules you want to put in as God to make this world function? Why are you building the world? Why Why is this all being created? We're going to deal with this in one of our big questions. Why did God create the world? But he says, like, what would the what would your modus operandi be? How would you run the world? Would you be sitting on the shoulder of your uh, of your uh, of your creations twenty four seven, letting them know all the time? Just before they did something, you tap them and say, you know what, don't do that. And everyone, you know, when you read them, it says you can't because you want people to be independent. You want people to utilize their free choice. You want people to be good and good necessitates choosing good, not being compelled to be good. And so as much as the question of why do bad things happen might trouble us, rightly so, the reality is is that the alternative is far more challenging and far um, far, far more problematic. So it's funny that we ask questions on a world that um, I'd like to suggest is the preferable one. The one that does look that good and bad things can happen to both good and bad people. And as much as we struggle with it, and we struggle with the degree um, with which it happens because it seems illogical to us, um, we all acknowledge that it is better than the alternative. And so that is something which I, I just think is a is an interesting point rather than, a, you know, one that has to, one has to accept. Okay. <clears throat> All right. We are through the introduction. So, um, you know, just, just, uh, I, I'll, I'll mention this. Like, if you're talking about this idea, I'll have someone on your show. So, I have a conversation with my mom. She's watching, so she can appreciate this. So, my my, my mom and my my daughter like to watch the show called Gogglebox, which I've never seen, but I'm told is a show where you watch people watching TV, which is an interesting concept. But the idea is that you're watching people as they watch TV and watching them make their comments on TV. Now, so they'll be watching, I don't know, some comedy show and they're all making these these, these loud comments. Oh, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she did that. Oh, vote them off, whatever the case might be. And I said to my daughter, I said, when I watch TV, I don't shout at the screen. No one shouts at the screen. So you're watching people who are acting that day watching TV. They're not really watching. No one watches TV like that. But if I knew there was a camera on me while I watch TV, I'd also act in a different way. And that's exactly what they do. If Hashem was on your shoulder, you would behave in a way. So the Gogglebox knows that, uh, you know, if you're half an hour of me watching TV and just watching me watch TV with literally not saying anything, as I guess all of us do. So that's not going to make good viewing. So people got to like sort of amp it up a bit. All right, that's the end of my little, my thing. All right, any questions of the introduction? Going, going, <coughs> gone. All right. So let's start now. I'm. Uh, this is my not my intent. We are already on the uh, half hour mark, so I'm just going to perhaps indulge with one or two answers of the way that the the, the the Gemara, the Talmud, starts addressing these particular questions, and then next week we will we will finish up with it. Okay. So number one, why do bad things happen to good people? So I said this, you know, it's because they're bad people. Now the Talmud really deals with this as a question, and I, and I bring it over here as a, as a very problematic way of dealing with the issue. Sorry, I just scrolled down there for some reason. So this is a Talmud. So within Jewish um, uh, literature, the book that deals with uh, why bad things happen or the, the book that deals with the concept of suffering is the book of Eov, otherwise known as Job. Now, Job is a, is known as the suffering uh, suffering servant. There's <laughs> there's no one who suffers more in uh, in Tanakhic literature than Job. Job is a man who starts off. So the, just a little bit about the story. So, it is a book in and of itself. Um, it is not a prophetic work, um, in a sense that uh, Job himself is questionably questionable whether he's even Jewish at all. The timing of the book of Job seems to be very, very ancient, at least as far as Tanakh goes. The, uh, the Medrash says that Job was one of the advisors that advised Pharaoh about what to do with the Jews. So there's a there's a Medrash that comes at the beginning of, of, of the book of Shmot, which says that uh, Pharaoh, when he says, let's deal wisely with the, with the Israelites, he brought in three advisors. He brought uh, Yitro, who was Moshe's father-in-law, who became Moshe's father-in-law, Yitro, Bilam, who was an evil prophet, and Yov, Eov, and Job. So it says that Yitro said, don't touch the Jews, leave them alone. And he ran away and he merited that uh, he married his son, his daughter married Moshe, and then his descendants all became part of the Jewish people. Bilam said you should destroy them. And Bilam eventually gets, <coughs> gets, um, gets killed in war. But Eov, Job, they say sat on the fence. He didn't say, you know, he didn't say one thing or the other. So in the in the, uh, in the the face, they say, uh, for evil to happen, just good people need, say nothing. So Iov is that individual who sat by and did nothing, according to the Midrash. So that But just from a timing point of view, it would put Iov all the way back at the beginning of our uh, exile into Egypt. So that's when the book is. So even though it finds itself in the writings of the Tanakh, so in the latter books, timing-wise it happened much earlier. And, and Iov was a man who had great wealth, had a wonderful family, and the way that the story goes is that um, that uh, the, the the Satan now the Satan in Christianity is another force. Within Judaism, the Satan is the so on an individual level, I have something called a Sahara, which is an evil inclination, and it is evil inclination is Hashem's um, challenge, is throwing down the gauntlet to me to be able to overcome difficulties. That's what the uh, the sahara is. On a national level, it's called the Satan. Okay? So on an individual level, it's a but the, the Jewish people have the Satan. They don't have the Yetzirah. So it's the thing that challenges us as a people to overcome challenges. Okay? That, that is what the Satan is. But the Satan and Hashem have this thing where the Satan says, you know, um, Yov, Hashem prouds himself, Yov that he's a man, he's such a faithful servant. And Satan says, Bet you, I can make him curse the name of Hashem. And they, so to speak, have a wager. This is all midrashic and the like. So I have a wager. And Hashem says, go for it. Let's see what, do your worst. And he kills his uh, kills, uh, whole family. He loses all his panasa. He, he, he's afflicted terribly physically. And consistently, you know, he's asking, why is this happening to me? So he has friends. Now, we don't know the friends. But he asked friends, and his friends come to him. And this is our Gemara that we have here in Baba Mitzia. This is a Gemara that comes and says, So this is a general If you see somebody who's suffering terribly, Or they're getting very sick. Or they are burying their children. Whatever you do, do not say that which Eov's friends said to him, because what did they say? (laughs) It says, your fear of God, it is not your fear of God, your confidence, and your hope, the integrity of your ways. Remember, I was you whoever perished, being innocent, meaning, you are evil. Why is Hashem punishing you that you have lost your children, that you've lost your panasa, that you've lost your your livelihood, and that you're suffering physically? You're terribly ill. Why? It can only be because Hashem thinks that you are evil. That Hashem is punishing you for your terrible transgressions. That you lack the ability. So the Talmud comes and says, "Do not say that. Do not." So this is a the 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 context of this Gemara is on a pasuk that we read a few weeks ago. Um, on which is "to, you should not oppress your fellow, And the way that the Gemara understands it is oppression here is onat dvarim. is oppressing people with your language, as opposed to oppressing people financially. So there will be times where you oppress people financially. But this is talking about so it gives examples, so you should never go to a convert and say to them, "Ah, oh, you I remember when you used to uh, worship idols." That or baltuvah, somebody who grew up non-observant says, oh, I remember the days when you used to uh, do lots of naughty things, and yeah, so you're not allowed to do that for somebody. You can't. Uh, you have to. You, that is onatvarim. So another way of onatvarim of speaking uh, inappropriately to people is that to say, ah, the reason that the sufferings happen to you is because you are a sinner.' So do not say that at all. Now this is interesting because there is never a a a, a moment. When some tragedy doesn't strike somewhere in the world where some guy, often a rabbi, will come up and say, The reason this terrible thing has befallen these people is because they are sinners. And we, we've heard that uh we hear I remember when the terror when the Pittsburgh massacre happened. Um, a couple uh, just over a year ago year and a half ago it was said it, it's it been said on corona it's been said like you name what it is someone is going to chime up and says ah oh, this is happening because these people are terrible sinners now the fact that you know doesn't seem to be consistent because often you're going to have you know people say oh corona is happening because of sin so You know, there's a previous chief rabbi who just passed away, Rav Bakshi Daron, who passed away from uh, Corona. So it's going to be very difficult to say that, uh, you know, this is all because of uh, sinners and the like. But that being said, is that, that this is something that the Gemara warns us, do not say that. Now, the question that could be asked is, is the problem saying it or is the problem believing it? Which are very different statements. Because saying there are lots of things that we don't say, but it's not a pro- problem to, you know, to to believe. so um, I might not like someone when there's no prohibition of not liking someone but going up and, and saying "I don't like you might be a tra- tra- prohibition of uh, you know, of, of, of so it's not clear that it's a problem of thinking it, but it is definitely a problem <coughs> of saying it. So that's uh, at least a sensitivity. So that's uh, the first reason that we'll talk out this evening. So it is uh, because the people are saying are not good, in fact, they're bad. All right. The next uh, thing is that uh, it is punishment for a sin or a relative sin. So this is a Talmudic statement comes at the beginning of Brachot. And it deals with the question that when Moshe went up to Sinai, He asked uh, three questions to Hashem. So he says, Moshe asked Hashem, Please explain your ways to me. So according to the Gemara, Hashem answered him and said, Yes, alright, I will tell you why bad things happen. So this we read in Pasha Kitisa, where Hashem says, where Moshe says to Hashem, Please show me your way. And Hashem, why is it that you have righteous people that things go well for them? And you have righteous people where things don't go well for them. And you have wicked people who seem to be going, you know, things seem to be going really well in, for them. And there are wicked people who are also having a terrible, terrible time. So, Hashem says back to Moshe, So, a tzaddik, who things are going really well for him, he's a tzaddik gamur. He's a person who's completely righteous. So, a righteous person who's 100% righteous, nothing bad will happen to him. Tzaddik Varalo. If he's a tzaddik and bad things are happening to him, tzaddik shayno gamur. He's not a perfect tzaddik. He's made He's made, uh, he's done a virus. Russia So if he's wicked and things are going well for him, Russia He's not a completely wicked person. He has some meritorious qualities associated with him. Russia varalo, Russia and a Russia, a wicked person that only bad things happen to him. So he's mamish the, he's the worst of the worst. Okay. So I, I want to hold the Gomorrah there and just explain a little bit. So what does it mean like this? So. At Sadiq Gamur and a rasha Gamur, a person is completely righteous, completely wicked, so they're very simple to explain. A, a, a perfect Sadiq is a person who everything just goes one, wonderfully in the world. There is nothing ever goes wrong in his life. He is 100%, you know, hunky-dory. And the wicked, the wicked of the wicked, like no, the guy can't get a break. Nothing goes right for him. He, his entire life is one, one uh, stumbling block after another. So I'd like to suggest that you don't have either of these characters exist in the world, everybody's either Tzadik Sha'anagamur or Russia she'enagamor. He's either he's a he might be a ninety-nine percent Tzadik, but he's not a hundred percent Tzadik, and he might be a ninety-nine percent Russia. He's not a hundred percent Russia. He's somewhere in between. So, what does it mean that why do bad things happen to this good person? <clears throat> so, the way that the commentaries explain it, and I think we spoke about this, we spoke this out a few weeks back, is that. The explanation I'm giving you is, uh, is by one of the commentaries in the Gemara called the Marashah. And he says, listen, this world is, uh, is, is, is a nice place, but it's actually nothing compared to the world to come. In the next world, that's where the real, uh, real pleasure comes. And that's where real pain is. So people, if you've got uh, 99% uh, of your life is, is, is righteous and 1% is wicked. So what would you prefer? Would you prefer to have that 1% in the next world where the suffering is terrible or get it out of the way in this world? So when you get into the next world, the 1% of your non-righteousness has been exacted from you and you go into the next world completely innocent and pure. That is what a, rasha, sh- a, a tzaddik, sh- That is a, a non-perfect a, a righteous person. So what happens is in this world, he will be exacted the punishment in order that when he goes into the next world, he'll be completely innocent. And what about the wicked that's having a good time? So he's the opposite. So... Every wicked person has done something decent in his life. Is there such a thing as a person who is wholly wicked and has never done an act of kindness in their life? No. So what do Hashem do? Hashem will grant them <coughs> grant them kindness as well. That They will have certain elements of kindness and they will have some benefit in this world. Maybe financially, maybe health, maybe family, whatever the case might be. But they're using up that entire account in this world. And when they die, they, they'll be punished completely for their wickedness. So that is this idea. So it's punishment for sin. But it's not punishment for sin in a sense that I'm going to punish you for this sin that you do. But rather there's this grand accounting scale that Hashem uh, keeps. So um, unlike the news, uh, life is very complex. And uh, the, the calculations that Hashem makes... What is you know what's the reward for a mitzvah? So it's not like a, it's not like a job that if you uh, if you mow someone's lawn you get fifty dollars and if you do this mitzvah you get fifty dollars of cookie points from Shemaim because there's there's so many complex uh, complex. Uh, uh, parameters and variables and you take into account. Let's say I do a mitzvah, but for me it was much harder to do the same mitzvah as for you. Maybe like to get up in the morning for me is much harder because I worked a night shift and you it's a lot easier and for me I've got to drive a long way and you don't have to drive a long way and I have struggled because I don't sleep at night and you do sleep at night. Like you can't just say that it's like mowing a lawn. Mowing a lawn, I don't care what night you had last night, you mow the lawn, you get 50 bucks. You don't mow the lawn, you don't get 50 bucks. But with regards to reward and punishment it's a far more complex system. But Hashem apparently works the system in such a way that if you see a righteous person suffering, it's because Hashem is trying to re- uh, refine them in this world. To be able to remove all the iniquities and all the, ble- the blemishes that they might have on their neshama in this world. So that when they go into the next world, they are completely pure. On the flip side, is a, if you see a wicked person who's having a, you know, having a great time, so it's the opposite. So he's, Hashem is he's being very patient, saying, okay, this guy has done a bit of good goodness and kindness in his life, and he deserves the reward for that, but I'm going to give him the reward in this world. So when he gets to the next world, there won't be any left. All right. All right, ladies and gents, uh, we have, as I said, we have started the topic. We have a lot more to cover, but I think it has already been 45 minutes, so I'm going to excuse myself and excuse you. And I uh, hope you can join us again next week where, please God, we will be able to finish this off. If you have not received uh, or sorry, the email about signing up for Shabbos, Shabbos, we are back. Please God, this uh, Friday night and Saturday. So if you have not received the uh, email, please let me know. And I'll send you the link so you can sign up. You have to sign up by 5 p.m. tomorrow. If you have not signed up, we unfortunately will not be able to accept you. So please do so. And I wish you all a pleasant evening.